Hello, everybody. I'm Randy Wooten, CEO of Maxio and your host of SaaS Expert Voices, the podcast that brings SaaS experts to you to help us understand where we are today and what's happening tomorrow. Today, I am delighted to welcome Baby Kim, a three-time serial entrepreneur, <laughs> founder, and CEO, to help us talk about the disruption of the office of the CFO and the evolution of the role of the CFO. And those two are intertwined as Baby will talk us through that. We'll spend a little bit of time talking about Baby's journey as an entrepreneur, the lessons she's learned. We'll talk about then the evolution, three-stage evolution of the office of the CFO, the skill sets that CFOs will need to become part of the uh, strategic CFOs that are being called forth uh, going forward. So welcome, Baby. I'm delighted to have this conversation. Hi, thank you so much, Randy, for inviting me onto this podcast. So, you know, it's been so much fun to get to know you and to know your product over the last uh, six to nine months. Can you give everyone a little bit of context with how you came up with your first idea for your first company and, and then how that led to your second company and then finally how you, you've ended up with Basis? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I am a lawyer from Chicago originally, and um, you disrupt what you know. Um, my parents were... Uh, computer science or com uh, computer engineers. That's how we immigrated to this country. And so I, I grew up with programming books all around me, but decided to do liberal arts instead because I thought that was nerdy. Um, jokes on me because <laughs> when the internet exploded, that definitely became the more exciting, um, you know, areas. And for me, um, I, you know, probably uh, the best developers will tell you that a, you disrupt what you know, right? At the time, it was legal for me. And B, it's automation comes out of this laziness, uh, <laughs> for lack of a better word. And for me, um, I just get really bored spending time doing repetitive tasks, right? And so that exists in every workflow, um, legal included. And so for me, it was about how do I not spend my time doing this rote task over and over again and to focus uh, more of my time on giving advice and connecting with clients, uh, which are things that are much more enjoyable. That's great. I, as an ops guy, my entire life figuring out how to optimize systems and processes. Uh, the things I talk about with folks is the first step is learning how to operate. So you have to define the information flow and the handoffs between people. The second step is what you're describing is the automation. And often that can be done with tools or systems. And the third step is elimination. So how do you actually eliminate the steps so things are fully automated? And I think one of the things in workflow automation is we're working to take manual processes and automate yes. them so you drive efficiency and effective, uh, the effectiveness, right? The double F. That's right. Um, That's right. <laughs> uh, uh, across, across operations. And then what we That's see right. is the next step is, well, if you're in a system of record, how do you take that data and move from workflow automation into intelligence engine? And, and That's so right. I think... It's a, it's a great starting point. And so I'd love to, we had talked a little bit about some of the lessons you learned at each of your companies. So the first company was bootstrapped. Can you talk a little bit about that context? I think a lot of our audience is going to feel that same pain. And, and then we'll talk about what does it mean to go from bootstrap to VC yeah. to second time VC. Yeah, absolutely. So um, Randy, you call me CEO. I'm very flattered. I do think there's a difference between founder and CEO. And um through my three companies, I've kind of danced um, on that spectrum and felt the difference. So my first company was, I was definitely just a founder, right? Like uh, bootstrapped, I just saw a problem, 
um, which is access to legal services. There was no platform to access um, legal services in a very transparent, flat fee manner. So um, I created one, um, a marketplace of uh, uh, 2,000 uh, you know, lawyers, legal services, and we ultimately merged into LegalZoom. And at the time, LegalZoom, uh, which is now a public company run by ex-Intuit executives, actually, so lots of crossover between legal and finance, I suddenly went from a first-time founder from Chicago to a late-stage PE-managed company, which was, you know, a... Um, it, it, it taught me a lot. It taught me to become an executive by moving from just operating to understanding the financials uh, of my operations. And so that evolution is what I think is the difference between a founder and ultimately a CEO when you are operating with financial understanding. And then specifically with your first company, one of the things we talked about was being bootstrapped. You were also super cash conscious. But yes. <laughs> within that context, you've, uh, there's freedom because you can make your own decisions. You're not responsible That's to anybody right. else. But there are also some constraints. And can you talk a little bit about um, the lessons learned in an underinvested business? Yeah, absolutely. So the first company, because it's bootstrapped, right, it's uh, underinvested. We can only invest what we earn. And so profitability was key um, and to, to uh, key as a key lever to reinvest into the business. And, um, you know, we ultimately achieved the cost of acquisition that was unparalleled in the industry. Like I think for, um, a, 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 we, we knew later that a competitor, it would cost them $2,500. We all, we got it to $150, <laughs> but, uh, we were capped, right? So I couldn't grow the business, um, in that manner. Um, uh, you know, uh, until once I reached 6 million. So, um, at the time, I didn't know how to raise venture capital. I was not, you know, in San Francisco, and therefore exiting the company seemed like the best option at the time. Then, when I moved to San Francisco, my second company had the pleasure of working with um, some of the top founders from the Bay Area, including Justin, who started Justin TV, later became Twitch. Um, they were very much like this core YC group of founders, and I, I just, you know, got exposed to the um, journey of having capital from the outset, which is something I never experienced before. And that journey was interesting because we almost had too much capital. It was the opposite problem. <laughs> um, this is like the age of softbank. We work, everyone was like, hey, let's grow fast, like pour money into this, right? So with just a deck and some, um, you know, uh, founders with tra great track records, we were able to raise uh, 10 million right off the bat to, to start the business. And so, yeah, welcome to the wild, wild west of VCs <laughs> yeah. doling out dollars. They've raised all this capital and like, hey, that's a good idea. Here's more. And at crazy valuations. And I think there's we read a lot about this tension between how do you manage the expectation to what you think is the reasonable growth projection and the valuation right. associated with that. Because you got to grow into that. And if you're not hitting those metrics, then all of a sudden you get upside down, you're overcapitalized and you're trying to figure out you're trying to get raised more money. You try to get that next milestone. You can't because you haven't hit the T2, D3, which was all yes. the rage. Triple, triple, double, double, double in the, um, you know, even five years ago. So can you talk a little bit about your experience with you know, what you, if you're able to share what the valuation was and what that meant and how that felt in terms of trying to run a business with those, side of, those types of expectations? 
Uh, yeah, absolutely. So again, like, you know, coming from a bootstrap uh, cash flow <laughs> conscious founder, all of a sudden to a what I call like a full GWA founder, right? Like you have excess capital from day one um, and five people. And so we raised 10.5 on 60 posts. And so right away, and um, we had to spend that money, right? And it's just like, how do we deploy this capital on a timetable that uh, would show returns? So at the time, like the concept of growth at all costs was just very jarring to me because I didn't understand like I'm like what what at what cost though like what is that you know when you have um when you're going in the red like how in the red can I really go in order to meet investor expectations and growth expectations um and that is a journey that I, there's no real right answer but for for sure there's this concept of you know in SAS a, a, a set of efficiency metrics right like magic number and those types of metrics that um, and benchmarks that guide your business um, towards, you know, uh, a, a set of yeah, like benchmarks of how much should you spend to like growth at what cost is more of the question than growth at all costs. Yeah, I think I think we talk about that as disciplined growth and using yes. you know, advertisement for Maxio. This is what Maxio helps you understand. Growth efficiency. Exactly. Growth efficiency. <laughs> but, um, you know, I do. So I'm a professional CEO and I have more coming in companies that are more at that inflection point, Series B, Series C. And what I often find is that early stage companies end up, for example, investing in go to market because they have this cash, which means they hire a CRO, they hire a bunch of salespeople, yes. they go out and invest a bunch of money in marketing, but they haven't nailed a replicable sales model yet. And so it's wasted money and the customers churn out the back end. And so you, you have to nail a viable category, understand your position. And a lot of that is founder-led sales through, I think, even seed and series A and e, maybe even up to series B. And, it, and then when you take that step into, and I think that's probably why a lot of people are interested in PLG versus sales-led motion, is you can light up a PLG interface, get customers at a lower CAC, uh, hopefully without having made all that investment. But when I was coming up in the 2000s, uh, it was the VCs were like, go market share, yes. go grab market share and spend a bunch of money. And you're like, whoa, we are way whoa. out of our skis yes. in terms of what we're yes. paying and what we're getting. Yeah. And and, and that company, um, we uh, shut it down around Series B because of those learnings. And at the time, you know, I think we take for granted that we are also in like a meta learning category, right? Of venture back. It's an exotic asset set. There, it's it's you know sure there's been decades of history, but relatively it's a newer asset class that is still evolving, still developing, um, and we're we're you know entrepreneurs and VCs alike are learning about um, how much to spend to grab market share. <laughs> yeah, well that's great, and I think uh, and the market conditions have changed, right? Correct. With, with exactly. Free money versus now with the interest rates is radically different. All of a sudden we're paying attention to the interest below the EBITDA. Right. It used to be you just focus on EBITDA, but now you got to hit your interest payment. I'm like, oh, my gosh, that's a big nut every every month. Like, (laughs) holy smokes, it changes your whole profile in terms of the cash you need to generate to be able to support the business going forward. And the assumption if you're going to take more debt, how is that going to play out? And everyone's constrained. It's just this really interesting. I mean, it was almost like a very challenging environment. Yes, absolutely. So now you've done it twice. Like I say the same thing. I was a public company CEO. I was <laughs> yes. a VC backed, had all these lessons learned and scars. And I come into my third gig with Maxio and I'm still learning a bunch, but I'm like, oh no, I got a little bit more pattern matching here, but I'm in a PE context, which is different than where I've been before. And you come into your third company, VC backed, but growth conscious. Tell me a little bit about 
the lesson learned now in this context that you have with bases. Yeah, absolutely. So as I was mentioning, the first and second journeys were about uh, not only, you know, uh, capitalizing the company and thinking about what are uh, how, what how to grow efficiently, but also my personal journey between founder and executive, right? And the different mindsets that you have uh, as each. And for me, every every time I go through this journey, the executive side of me. Um, becomes more pronounced in that, like, I want to pay attention to capital allocation way earlier uh, than before. And I think that's why I started Basis is that, you know, operations um, is really important, but to fly blindly is not the way to ultimately understand um, your financial trajectory. Yeah, that's great. I talk about, uh, so I went to business school and uh, coming out of the military, knew nothing about business. And I feel like I probably learned more than anybody else at business school because I knew less going in. Right? Yeah. And so my learning <laughs> path was huge. Um, yes. But it's interesting that a lot of those skills that I learned at business school, I don't think I really started to deploy until I was an executive. You don't think about capital structure. You don't think about EBITDA multiples. You don't think about return on capital investment. You may be, you may do some like NPV analysis for business investments, but it's really different working across the three financial statements and then working through your operating metrics and understanding cash. And and it, it, it's a bummer because you don't really – if you grow up in finance, which we'll shift to in a second, you probably have an understanding of that moving from accounting – into controllership, into FP&A, but for all the other executives in a CEO, if you don't come from that, it's a new language. It's a new language. It's a new language of understanding financials. And that's the vision of Basis is that how do we as operators um, translate our operations into a level of financial understanding that then helps us operate better? Yeah. And I would, so when we talked before, you described Basis' mission as being strengthened financial acumen with finance yes. and non-finance alignment. So can you help That's us understand right. that? Yeah. And this actually goes back to our discussions about PLG and SaaS um, as well, right? So operators operate and, um, you know, like we like to just act like immediately. It's like, hey, let's launch a campaign. Let's do this. Let's let's do that, right? And but in order to make, make huge decisions, like do I invest more into this channel or do I you know, uh, pay this vendor for, uh, do I renew this contract? Like all these financial decisions are more effective when we understand the big picture and how, what the, you know, financial alignment of the company is uh, with the investors. So uh, that is what, uh, you know, there's huge pain points around that. Um, and that has to do with PLG as well, because they're initially in early B2B SaaS, um, is designed with financial reporting in mind with ERPs and, you know, um, those types of software. But now um, software has proliferated to benefit the operator first. So it's PLG. You can log into HubSpot, you know, and start just like moving cards around, right? And then um, I still am guilty of this. Like the first time we got our first customer, even in this company, I started a Stripe account and I'm like, hey, let's go. Like, let's charge somebody. <laughs> we got our money. Great. Oh, let's add another skew, right? Um, and the result of that is that, you know, ultimately we uh, don't really uh, know what, um, like, how the data is organized to help us understand uh, what we actually accomplished. Yeah, well, I, that was a great tee up from Axio, right? That is a <laughs> yeah, system of exactly. record for billing and financial operations. It helps make sense of the madness. I think the other 
piece that you were pointing to, which we're going to shift now, I think, is discussing how technology, data analytics, and AI are reshaping the CFO's role. And when we chatted before, you 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 had you were summarized. I thought great. There was like three stages. Would you like to talk through the three stages of what does it mean to be a CFO and how finance has to evolve? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So stage one is, uh, you know, again, like a set of workflows and tools that are financially led, right? So Excel, we all worked in Excel, and it's a tool that finance people understand. ERPs, it's it's a tool that finance people design and understand. Um, And now we're in this era of software-led or PLG-led software workflows, which is designed for the operator in mind and um, not necessarily with reporting and financials in mind. And so uh, that creates a certain challenge for a new class of CFOs. Um, It's stage two, which I call software managed services. It's like, how do we, um, you know, in the office of the CFO, uh, understand what the the operators are using as tools in their day-to-day tools? May it be a CRM, Clary, Gong, I mean, the list just grows, right? And then what information do we need from each of these software systems to start to create a system of record that is consistent and makes sense and that can report back to the organization? Um, So I call that the software managed services era, where it's crucial now to start to understand how, uh, what, what software people are using and how they're configured, what the workflows are in it. And how do you put that picture back together? Yeah. So when we were talking uh, before, we described stage one is working in the spreadsheet, the no box phase. And my experience with that is um, when CFOs are building the budget, for example, they're doing it in Excel and you often don't want to share the entire file with everybody, every operator. So the marketing person, the salesperson, and the R&D folks all have access to the same file. And so you run through this crazy exercise of you're doing all these separate meetings and you're trying to cut out pages from the spreadsheet. You also have this issue where if people screw with your formula or um, uh, mess up one of the uh, connections between the different tabs, uh, it blows the whole model up. And so I think what you're describing broadly is this evolution of the FP&A function within the broader CFO function. So if you take a system like Maxio, uh, which is a system of record for billing and invoicing, like that's the data. Then what we get a lot of uh, requests for is, hey, how do we take the data out of Maxio and put it into a system like Basis? And there's several ones out there uh, that allow you to do this forecasting, this planning. And so the CFO starts to work with the operators in a system, this, this as you described it, once out of the box phase, where you're doing this software managed service. Two points to that. One is I think this fundamental point, which is part of the reason I came to Maxio was I saw the the revolution, the disruption of sales and marketing functions for the last 20 years, where where software had came in and to our earlier conversation, it was driving efficiency, effectiveness, it was letting uh, uh, people buy software and do really cool stuff, programmatic advertising, like crazy. And what we find is the office of the CFO is kind of a laggard. Can you talk a little bit about that background and context and why it may feel like, oh, this is no duh for a lot of people, but for the CFO in particular, why that function has been a laggard and and what we're seeing changing it? Right. Because the CFO is um, ultimately, right, like before forecasting even, they're in charge of the system of record. And 
that system of record is, you know, just it's it's a synthesis of what actually happened, which now again we we talked about happens in all these fancy softwares, um, just different combinations, you know, and people procuring them without asking their CFO, of course. <laughs> and yeah, so right. that creates right, like it's really hard to be a CFO because it creates um, reporting debt and financials uh, aggregation uh, consolidation debt when when the software proliferates like that. Um, and so again, like my my accountant, my first accountant was like. Can you please not log into Stripe? I, I do not want you to use Stripe anymore because like you're creating SKUs, like I'm gonna lock it down, like you don't get access at all, right? And so eventually um they catch up and what you need are just better sources, uh, better systems of record. So Maxio is is a prime example of one. Um we're switching from Stripe to Maxio as we speak. And <laughs> it's <laughs> yeah. Um, because you know, to, it keeps your SKUs. It's something that the operators don't appreciate, but it really keeps your SKUs in line, and it gives you a trusted systems of record analytics. So that's what the CFO does: is that they make sure that you know the systems of records is a pristine, intact, um, in spite of all the software proliferations that are. Yeah, and just to build on that, like when I think of CEO, like I need my CFO to manage cash. They need to tell me how much cash we have in the bank today, how much we're going to burn, and what do we need. So that whole capital management, that comes from under, having pristine financial s- statements. And all three of them work together, right? So the P&L with the balance sheet, the cash flow, how does that all play out to give me cash at the end of the day? That's um, right. That's right. And and I think CFOs, to your point, they're, they're, like, they're, they're, they're the guardians of the family jewels, and they don't want anybody else to touch it. And so, and they've grown up trusting Excel where they understand the models and they're able to do it and they, they don't let anybody else in it. And so now all of a sudden you move into this new world where distributed access, multiple That's users. Right. Remote work, yeah, multiple users, decentralized procurement, like it becomes extremely hard to put this record back together. And so for that specifically, so for stage two, what you call software advantage service or the out of the box phase, can you describe some of the skill sets that you're seeing CFOs needing to embrace or think differently about how they do their jobs to be successful in stage two? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I think it's it's really about thinking about workflows, right? It's like, there's a lot of philosophical decisions um, to make on that. It's like, do you allow, um, you know, your operators to pick their own tools, do whatever they want in it. And, and if not, like, how do you influence uh, their workflow, right? And to influence their workflow, you need to understand how those software works um, fundamentally. It's like, hey, like, does this meet the requirements of financial reporting? Um, does picking this POE make sense? Um, you know, uh, Rippling says you can onboard and accomplish all of those tasks. Like, but what about financial reporting? Like, does that get me the results as well. So it's like a negotiation between the two. Um, I liken it to, you know, in, in my personal life, my husband is our family CFO and we have these negotiations as well, right? Like he's a credit card points guy and he's like, okay, here are two credit cards. Use this one for groceries, this one for pharmacy, because in pharmacy you get these points, right? And I'm like, okay, that's cool. I don't want to necessarily think about it, right? Like that way. And um, I find myself in um, Safeway Pharmacy, and I was like, "Is this a grocery store or is this a pharmacy?" <laughs> Did you call him? Like, Did you call him up yeah. and say, "Help me figure out what I got to do"? <laughs> exactly. And then, <laughs> it's like, do I use this credit card? Decor? And you know, and that's an example of 
you don't want the operator to be burdened when they're in their course of, you know, operating, right, to be bugged down with that. And that's why um, in a system like Basis or Maxio, like you, uh, hopefully we give operators the, the you know, uh, freedom to operate, but yet uh, be able to structure the data in a way that is required to uh, give the CEO all of the metrics that um, he needs in order to navigate the business. Yeah. And so I think this distinction you're drawing between data in a database versus spreadsheets, can you talk a little bit about that? I think that is a, a skill that is different for CFOs moving from the comfort of Excel to think about workflows and database. Can you chat, provide some of your thinking around that for us? Yeah, that's right. So um, Excel is extremely powerful. It's it's uh, linear and, it, and each data is stored in a cell, whereas database is tables, right? And they draw from other tables that are not necessarily seen um, in an Excel tab. So just losing that, you know, being able to fundamentally be comfortable working with databases means that um, the data architecture in your mind and, you know, how data relates to one another starts to change. Um, some parts of it become less visible um, to you. So you have to sort of trust the out-of-the-box offering that the tool uh, you know, provides. So you got to be able to, one, understand how databases are structured. So it's a different paradigm for thinking about data and how data is associated with tables. Number two is you got to be comfortable cleaning up the data in the database. So either know how to do it or have people on your team to do it. And number three is trusting the calculations happening behind the scenes where you just can't see it in the cell as you click on it and double check. Okay. A, you know, times B divided by C. Where did this number come from? That sort of thing. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, having this certain level of, of out-of-the-box comfortability with no flexibility to manipulate. So there's this really interesting dynamic. So that gets us to stage three, the working with a black box. And this is working in AI, which we're all looking towards. It's going to revolutionize every function. Specifically, how do you how do you think about – so period, new paragraph. We were talking about CFOs lagging. Like my marketing team right now is already using AI to generate content, both written and and um, video, and everyone's doing it. But we're trying to figure out how to do it uniquely. Sales teams are using AI to help do research of prospects and help do their cadences for sales law for outreach. So developers are embracing it to do ninety percent, get the code done, and then build on it. So you see all these functions embracing AI. And we're at this moment in time, I'm not the first to say it, that's going to transform how everybody does their work. Where are we in your perspective in terms of uh, CFOs embracing AI, being comfortable with it? And what are the skill sets needed uh, uh, to move into this brave new future? That, that's right. So um, for the, so first we talk about no box, right? You can, it's a canvas, you see every cell, you, you understand where data comes from. Second is database, um, how that fundamentally uh, changes data structure. And then AI as well, it's going to fundamentally change um, data structure for the CFO in a black box manner, which is like not a new problem in AI um, is that this problem explainability, right? Because when we think about financial understanding, um, the key to that is being able to explain where the metrics are coming from. And um, you know, when the CFO is presented with that, like, are they com- are they going to be comfortable? How do they explain that um, something, you know, resulted from a AI behind the scenes, right? And so I think just that 
that black box explainability problem is um, something that would surface to challenge the office of the CFO. What I've seen with many CFOs is they want to queue things. They want to queue data um, by rebuilding from the bottoms up. Like think about every company, and I'm sure this is true for, for CFOs, fractional CFOs that roll into a company. They're like, yeah, yeah, I know you got a model. I'm going to build my own model. And I'm going to build my model in Excel because I know exactly where it is. I know I've gone through this with our own CFO and and him having a cycle on the model is super complicated. I mean, we have 2,300 customers. There's all crazy different pricing. It's it's really, really hard. And you're going to walk into a world where you can't QA something by deconstructing it back to its atomic level and building it That's up to right. the bottom. That's right. So the, the method of QA is going to transform from like you said, Randy, um, going from bottoms up, rebuilding cell by cell, literally, <laughs> figuratively, um, and then, you know, leveraging technology to even QA and trusting that QA system. Great. Well, we're getting close to end, but I do want to shift the final part of the conversation. So we've talked a little bit about the skills that are required uh, for the 21st century CFO. But I was wondering if you could elaborate a little bit more on, on some of those things that you think as you're embracing this new world order, uh, the skills to develop, such as embracing technology, data-driven decision-making, cross-functional collaboration. We've talked about that. One of the points you made was that now we have the power, like the software, the best-in-class power software was always available for the enterprise. But now what you're finding is because of the compute power is basically cost zero, we have these low-touch uh, abilities to create great applications that so you're getting, like enterprise tools at uh, SMB and mid-market prices. Can you talk a little bit about what that means, both in terms of like having the Apple Watch that has more compute power than what got the uh, rocket ships to the moon, and how that changes the CFO's role? Yeah. Um, I- you know, um, I think we're seeing the head of finance and at earlier companies as well, right? Um, but they have a lot of work to do um, in the SMB and mid-market uh, segment. And so, like, you know, w- what about you guys? Like, how, how many people are on your finance team right now? About six. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So anywhere from one to six. Um, but there's so much to do in those companies. And, um, you know, uh, unfortunately, companies don't, uh, blow up their finance team, right? Like it's considered still to be in GNA expense. And so uh, CFOs have to do more with less. And um, in, in this world where data is moving really fast, database, uh, data is generated by databases, operators are just purchasing their own tools. It's paramount that they do leverage technology and they leverage software to um, do a part of their work. That's great. And the other thing we talked about, broad trend, I was at the AICPA cpa.com conference and they had 45 tech coming up again yes it is oh okay yeah the one i went to was the executive (laughs) forum it was it was cool um but this what i didn't realize was the labor market reality in terms of lots of accountants are quitting and fewer grads are joining and it's a real crisis i think in this industry and you know whatever it is about the new generation doesn't want to go into accounting i get it if what you're doing is using an abacus and dotting i's and crossing t's and so how do you think about that as well as a driver of required innovation and and, and thinking in both process and how you how you hire people, how you train people, those tools that you provide them as a 21st century CFO? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, outsourcing has been a trend um, uh, for a long time now and increasingly so because of the phenomenon that you just described, which is the disappearing U.S. accountants and CPA, right? Like it's hard work, it's long hours. Um, and 
like, again, going back to my uh, roots as a lawyer, like people don't want to do repetitive work. So when something becomes repetitive, um, you know, it, it becomes less enjoyable as well. And so to me, the role of software, uh, I believe in software more than outsourcing here. Like I, I believe that right now there's a huge opportunity to um, elevate the profession into become advisors and consultants um, and really focus on that 15% that um, AI has a long way to go in replacing and overseeing, you know, um, a, a set of software and, and AI that can help automate the 85%. Yes, that a uh, great point. I was part of the first wave of AI. It was predictive AI where we built our own data centers. I was at Rocket Fuel it was, and it was real AI. Um, but at that time, I, I talk about this distinction between AI being perceived in two camps. Today, it's called the boomers and the doomers. But the boomers was like the Jetsons future. Like everything's going to be, and we're just going to play golf all day and eat bonbons. And then the <laughs> other vision of reality, the doomer vision was the Terminator, that all yes. the AI powered robots are going to you know kill us all. Um, and we had a tough brand challenge with that at Rocket Fuel with artificial intelligence. And our mascot was Robbie the Robot. Um, and we really had to be deliberate about changing the, the language to being AI meant augmented intelligence, and that we found in the marketing discipline that media planners and buyers were able to use the programmatic uh, systems that we were providing, the platforms, the DMP and the DSPs, to do a job, a manual job, much more quickly. And then they could go off to the higher order uh, operations. And so I think uh, you're suggesting the same thing. I mean, one of the questions we had, for example, was, could AI do your audit? Yeah, that's, I mean... That is certainly what AI can do is anything that, you know, starts with a Google search, right? So we've seen already, and we're going to launch our own benchmarking tools that can, you know, query data um, that are external to the company at a rapid phase um, and, uh, you know, give us benchmarks um, right there, right? But then when it comes to auditing, that is the highest caliber. You're talking about edge cases where accuracy really, really matters, um, and so that is where I, I would say that, you know, uh, there's a high bar to reach. Yeah, totally. And I think so this is why it's exciting about you and me being in this space, the disruption yes. of the function of finance, to be able to partner with uh, fast growing early stage companies and their CFOs yeah. who want to chart the future. And it's going to be the wave that transforms all of finance over time, yes. not just B2B SaaS companies. So I think, and just the closing thoughts, a couple things for me. One is, I uh, really appreciate your time and congratulations on all your success. Um, I do think this idea, really, there are three things that you, as a CFO, you need to move from just reporting to help your entire executive team become financially literate. And so they can help understand how decisions are made and trade-offs. And so you have this team dynamic versus the CFO off by himself, building their, their budget and <laughs> yeah. getting it approved. All um, right. I think the other key shift is around the moving from having to do everything bottoms up to being the QA. How are you able to set in the checks and the and the and the constraints and the the red flags so that you're monitoring the system rather than having to build the house? Bad metaphor. The third thing I think which you're pointing to but we haven't said explicitly is the importance of continuous learning and adaptability in finance. That's right. And many finance people are super comfortable with, I dot my I's, I cross my T's, I'm, I'm paid for compliance and governance. And so it really is a new muscle 
to be able to say, no, 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 I need to be adaptable and adjust and flex into this world of, of moving what I described from the back office to the front office, from, from closing the books to being a strategic partner to the CEO or the CRO as you're building your go-to-market plan, your pricing, your packaging, your offers. It's a, it's a different opportunity. Yeah, it's different, uh, entirely. And I mean, right now, as we speak, there are still debates about QuickBooks Online versus QuickBooks Desktop happening, right? And so we're we're seeing it, the industry there. And then we're also seeing more on the coasts, like just very, very exciting, you know, p- uh, opportunities around AI and people embracing that. So can't wait to see how this industry shifts. Awesome. And so in final uh, remarks, uh, baby, uh, how can people get in touch with you? LinkedIn, I assume. Uh, do you want to show your little website? Thing? Uh, <laughs> yeah, I didn't realize there was a, a no mirror function <laughs> here. So I, you know, did I wrote this, uh, but basically this is our logo and um, it's basis.so. Um, we started a company a couple years ago. All the dot coms were taken and dot co. So we're you know, in the SO world. And um, I hope to help you guys um, put together your financials and um, put together the reporting that um, helps you navigate your business in this era of growth efficiency. Awesome, baby. Thank you for your time. Have a great day. Thank you.